You're listening to Jeff Coleman's new Cosmo Squad record, The Morbid Tango. And before we get rolling, please join me in thanking Audio Technica and their brilliant and amazing E-series of in-ear monitoring headphones for presenting today's episode with Jeff Coleman. You know, the E-series comes in three levels and we're going to give away one pair of each. You know what we're talking about, in-ear monitors. Tiny, compact, fit inside your skull, wrap around your ears, and lock there with that moldable coaxial cable so you can jump off the drum riser wirelessly. Audio-Technica's E70 is the top of the line, which uh, retails for $399. Again, we're going to give that away. I'll tell you how to do it, how to, how to enter. But the E70 is totally badass because it comes with three balanced armature drivers in each ear for perfect sound presentation. Of course, a lot of artists, from pros to church players to wedding bands to rock stars, are perfectly happy with the middle product, which is the E50, for just $199. And you can get in the game, kick-ass, dual-phase push-pull drivers on the E40 for just $99. Head to guitarplayer.com slash Coleman, that's K-O-L-L-M-A-N, to enter to win one of these three awesome pairs of E-Series in-ear monitoring headphones from Audio-Technica. Or head to audio-technica.com to learn more about the products. E-Series in-ear monitors, I love them. So check it out. We're at episode 50 of No Guitar Is Safe. Thank you so much for listening. This is kind of a milestone, I guess, if you're into numbers. For me, it's just another killer hang with a killer guitar player, and I'm not messing around today. Jeff Coleman brings it. This guy's like the genetically engineered perfect guest for this podcast. Yeah, there's just something about Jeff Coleman that in some ways, you know, he embodies what I was envisioning as the kind of guest we would have on this show when I first created the show two years ago because he just can't stop playing guitar. And he's so good. He's got killer tone. He shows you how he gets his tone, which pedals he's using, everything from his culmination signature drive pedal to his his vintage Marshall to the other stuff, his pickups. Or he shows you licks that he played or he jammed with me or he shows you exercises that he learned that he was taught and how they made him a better musician. Or he talks about adventures that he's been on with so many other great musicians. I mean, he's played with so many people, everyone from like, you know, he plays in Chad Smith's band, the Bombastic Meat Bats. Hilarious name for a hilarious guy. Chad Smith, of course, the amazing and hilarious drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Jeff Coleman has also played with Glenn Hughes and produced records and songs with him, the great singing bass player from Deep Purple and other bands, solo artist. Jeff has also worked with UFO and Michael Shanker. He's on the road right now with the famous and great classic rocker Alan Parsons. Jeff also plays with one of the most successful pop stars in the world, but you might not have even heard of this person if you're not from Japan. I think they call him Yazawa-chan. This guy is, you know, he just plays five nights in a row, sold out at Budokan and every other sold out stadium in Japan. It's crazy. Jeff says it's kind of like being in the Japanese Rolling Stones or something. That's just one of the things he does. Jeff also has a great sense of humor, you know. I love that. 
Here's a record he did with John O. Brown, our mutual friend, the great composer and producer. This record is called Pervidelic. The center of attention in the middle of the floor Dance a lovely number who had never seen before Jeff has put out a bunch of records on his Marmaduke label that he created, maybe 16 or 18 different albums, Cosmo Squad, Jeff Coleman Band, stuff like that. But you know what? There's one final quality about Jeff that makes him just a great interview, and that's that he he wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, he's such a passionate cat, and he he shows his soul to you, man, and, and he's not afraid to tell you about one of the more tough childhoods you're going to hear about. And he's not asking for any pity or anything. He's just telling you what happened and how his life came to be. And then blended in there is musical love story between him and his brother, Tommy Coleman, and the utterly tragic way that it ended. And I, I really thank Jeff for being so open and talking about this. It's pretty intense. It's riveting. You won't be able to stop listening. So let's rev up the copter and get in on some of these adventures with Jeff Coleman. Head out to his house, his home studio, in his lovely house that he lives in with his uh, wife and kids in the hills outside of Los Angeles. Thank you, Zoom, for the recorder that I used to record this. And I'll just be playing one of Jeff's strats through my little Roland cube amp while Jeff plays through the real deal rig of doom and remember keep it alive to you 95 and please visit audio-technica.com check out their e-series monitoring headphones as well as all the other highly evolved products including microphones and headphones that come up in their amazing 50 years of existence Get comfortable. Just to kind of hear the volume a little. Yeah, that great. sounds great. That's beautiful. 
Bom dia. Feels good. I'm playing. Such a badass player, Jeff MFN Coleman. Is MFN your middle name? Uh, uh, MFR. <laughs> it's a lot of alcohol. It's coming out of my pores. From I've been drinking since 1982. <laughs> With a break or two, or just uh, a few breaks in there. 
Just a couple of breakfasts. You know, you gotta live a little if you want to play with a little bit of emotion. You can't just sit in your bedroom and jam all day, right? You gotta fucking get out there and live life. And then figure out a way to let that shit out, musically speaking. I've always loved that about you because I've known you for a few years and uh, you're always living a little, man. You're always wild and uh, energetic on stage and off. It's all I know how to do. <laughs> you sound great playing my guitar. If, if y'all could see, it's a seafoam green Strats, bad to the bone. Yeah, tell us about both these Strats. So I got the seafoam green one here, which plays beautifully. And I love that you got a push pull on yep. the uh, humbucker. What is this humbucker? That one is an arcane... Uh, Rob Timmons from Arcane. He's over third encore, and uh, he hand winds those pickups. That particular one is called the Brown Bucker. It's based kind of on the what he thinks is the uh, mismatched pole piece Eddie Van Halen pickup from back in the day. And you know, part of my tone is not about high output pickups. I tried yeah. high output pickups, and they don't work for me. Somebody gave me a John Sykes Sir pickup, or excuse me, John, uh, not John Sykes. Uh, Doug Aldridge, Freudian yeah. <laughs> <a> slip. <laughs> probably Doug's hero. Love you, Doug. Um, and it was just dark and murky for me. I mean, Doug gets a fantastic sound, but he's got his own recipe and his own way playing. Paul, or? Yeah, I put Paul that did. in. Um, I think I put it in this Fujigan copy of a Les Paul, but it's a really nice guitar. But I realized right yeah. away, yanked it out. It was like 15k on the resistance. Just doesn't work for me. So back to that guitar, that's probably like 8.5 in the resistance. And then I got a couple of the John Cruz custom yeah. wound uh, Fender custom shot pickups. That's beautiful. And you want to here demonstrate it. You want to switch guitars for a second? Sure. Why not? Why don't you take the Seafoam Green and show, show us <laughs> the difference between the humbucker and then I, when I first picked it up, I loved how the split single coil sounded yeah, by just so the push-pull volume knob. Right. If I'm going for kind of a mean Eddie kind of thing. Which, you know, listening back some of his tones like early on in live, and you know yeah. better than most with the Eddie tone. I saw you play with the Van Halen thing. and uh, But it's very single coily. It's not too, it's not dark and murky. It's got a lot of bite, you know? Yeah. Bite. Now that's with the single channel culmination. Basically... Yeah. If I was running dry with no effect, that's how much gain I got coming out of the Marshall, just so you guys, y'all know. Then if I turn on the culmination with the humbucker setting, yeah. you know, I can kind of, I can kind of fake it pretty. Yeah, well, It's sort yeah. of my own tone, but it's a little, you know, we're all inspired by early Eddie. That was the pinnacle of what a great sound yeah man and you gotta have, you gotta let some of the frequencies into the party it can't be too dark you know? yeah you gotta, gotta get nasty in there a little yeah bit. the thing that i look for in the tone is i want to be able to i like more than eight crayons in my crayon box i like metal i love heavy i love all that but i also love john schofield and i want to play chord changes i want to have colors in my chords so i want to be able to have a mean sound but it doesn't all ring together right like uh you know I remember when Mesa Boogie dual rectifiers came out and Wes Borland, he's a great player and all that, but we'd plug it in that sound and I couldn't get anything out of it for me. It was great for the chunk, yeah. but you couldn't hit a minor nine chord and it'd just all run together, you know? Yeah. So I don't want to have those uh, limitations 
uh, tonality wise. Now here's the single coil with that same coronation. It's definitely more. You know? Yeah, man. <laughs> so it's it's hard to get both to the best of both worlds, and you really got that going with that humbucker right yeah. there, dude. I mean, split it single, it's not going to be as good as a telly, but it's got its thing, and it's cool. And I love it when you mix it with some real heavy, you know, chunky stuff, yeah. uh, like a... With an octave pedal. Yeah. And then back to humbucking. Got more of a mid-range yeah. bump. Wow. I'm just watching you play, man. I just love the way you play. I'm trying, trying to concentrate on the gear, but I just look at you. I think you must have been playing every day for decades. Well, when I was a kid, you know, teenager, we all... We didn't have anything else to do. Well, I wasn't going to do homework, so... <laughs> where, where, where you grew up in Ohio, or...? Yeah, Toledo, Ohio. And I saw Randy Rhodes in 1982, and I was like 15 feet from him, and it changed my life. And Tell I wanted me about to, that day. I wanted to be him. It was uh, January 30th, 1982, Toledo Sports Arena, and uh, it was it was amazing. You Just know, I uh, six months before he was killed, I less guess. than two months. Wow, he died March 19th, I believe. Oh man, this was January 30th. Talked to Rudy Sarzo about all that and many things, and. A lot of stories, but you know, so he you, was like my James Dean. You know, had if you heard the Ozzy records, and you're like, I want to go see this. And what, what? You know what? When when Blizzard of Oz came out, my brother had a ticket to the 1980 concert, and Randy's hair was darker at that gig. I didn't go. I was like, and then I wanted to buy a ticket, but none of us had heard any of their songs in the radio yet. And the night he was going to the concert, I heard Crazy Train. I would shit myself. I was like, God, I wish I went <laughs> to this concert. All we knew was Ozzy. We didn't know this blizzard yeah. of oz band right. my brother came home raving oh my god the drummer the guitar player the bass player you wouldn't have believed it and were and you so, playing guitar at that point yeah i was uh i was like uh two and a half years into it right. yeah and uh man what, what kind of stuff were you playing at that point you know i was uh into like kiss and ted nugent and, and what and made you want to rush pick up the guitar in the first place your brother or? you know what my brother always desired to play drums and he kind of beat me to it and I, we, we you know all kids want to play drums this is like the eddie van halen alex story again it happens so much yeah <laughs> yeah we, we sat in a basement writing originals for you know uh 15 years yeah. i just released a record uh recently not to sidetrack from the gear of the no, stuff we, we were so doing at 16 years old uh <laughs> called teen metal years and it was all the four track stuff yeah. we had recorded. And I got this mastering guy to re it sounds pretty fucking good. Like sonically speaking. I just wanted the people to hear what I was doing at 15 and 16. Because after I saw Randy at 14, yeah. I just went insane, like, practicing all that shit all day so long. So, yeah, take me to that day. So, you finally, two years later, 
the concert comes around again, and you're like, I'm on it this time. Yeah, it was like nine months later. Oh, yeah. okay. Nine they, months they later, were, yeah. they you're came, on it. They came back around for Diary of a Madman, and we went to the show, and man, it was just... I have two photos from the gig as you walk in the doorway here that a buddy of mine, a professional photographer, took. Oh, sweet. And gave me from the pit, so... You know, we all have to have our heroes, and... Uh, yeah, so you were there, and you, you saw Randy, and how was that? It was just... I couldn't take my eyes off him. I couldn't believe... And still, I'm finding new videos on YouTube, and I'm watching them, and it takes me back, and I have that reinvigorated sense of inspiration like I always had. I'm still the same kid that just wants to fucking be Randy Rowe. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have my own musical ideas and expressions, but, the, but you can't get old and jaded and forget why you started playing. You know, I go to the Baked Potato sometimes, and I'll walk in, not on my gigs, and I'll be amongst a few guitar players standing in a row. And if I'm around the guys, the wrong people, man, there's some bad energy out there. It's like, guys, man, they're they're jaded and they're upset. I don't know why. <laughs> and they're playing fucking guitar and they're great. And music's not a competition, you know. And we all, you know, we're all in it together, and it's just wonderful. And I I do see some people that are, you know, a little bit. I don't know. They let a chip in their shoulder. Maybe they think they should be more successful than they are, or they're I don't know. They they just they're done with guitar in general. Maybe they watch too many YouTube videos and just want to play C, F, and G. I don't care. But whatever you want to do, you just you know have to keep a positive attitude. So I always surround myself with good energy. People like Jeff Marshall and these kind of guys, and totally. and uh, and just write songs that uh, inspire me and hopefully inspire somebody else. That's all you can do, you know. Yeah, I always get a great energy from you too, man. Wherever you are, it's always, you know, it's just <laughs> a lot of energy. And <laughs> yeah. it was nice to play a couple songs with you at one of your gigs at, at the Big yeah, Potato. Yeah, we did a jam for Jason, right? Tribute yeah. to Jason Becker from yeah. back in the day. talking about your brother Tommy of course and his story is so tough I mean the thing that you've been through that yeah. I'd like to play a song that you dedicated to him it's called Brother to Brother you have such a total electric side but boom you have this amazing acoustic side tell us uh, about the emotion behind this and i don't know how much you want to tell about what happened yeah, to tommy um, i know it's a tough subject yeah, it's a tough subject but I, I you know i i can deal with it um you know he was he and i grew up i mean the story goes way back because it's interesting i'll go back to the beginning because i think it's important for people to understand we were two kids 
My parents divorced when I was three. Basically, mom got married too young, cheated on her husband, and they divorced, and then she got the kids. You know, back then, everybody, the wife gets everything, and the f husband gets the bills, and, you know, here, you know, the judge is like, you get the car, you get the house, you get the kids. Well, she was in no position to take us because she was just an alcoholic. So basically, from th three to 12 years old, we lived like gypsies. Really? You know, I went to like 14 grade schools in two years. We'd live, it, we'd live wow. with a guy that she met at the local bar. I remember pulling a gun on a guy that was beating my mom up in a bedroom. And literally, I'm, I'm, I'm like my daughter Lila's age, and I'm, I'm holding a shotgun at this guy, and that's how we got out of that situation. And what that's age, how our lives were. What age is that? <laughs> huh? Like, like 10 years, 8 years old? Yeah. Wow. And uh, we loved our mother, though, but she basically, she screwed up, and so she, her, her uh, answer to that was drinking all the time. Like, I wanted to play drums in fifth grade, but she wouldn't get me a snare drum because she didn't want it. And I love my mother to death, but it was a learning experience. And then my father had remarried, and he married a woman. The best way to describe her is like Glenn Close from Fatal Attraction. Very smart, but the highs and lows were so huge. Wow. And, uh, and he always wanted to get custody of us. He was a good, you know, middle class, always worked three jobs, really dependable, reliable, mellow guy. But he's watching our lives spin out of control nonstop. And my mother wasn't physically abusive or anything. I loved her dearly. Um, but my stepmother, the woman he married, one day she put a gun in her mouth and killed herself. She just could, couldn't take the manic depressive, bipolar, whatever, right. got off her medication. Where did she do that? At her house. They were living in, the, in Toledo. And he came in and found her. And it was horrible. Uh, but it changed our lives because he was able to get custody of his kids. And it was like overnight, it changed our lives forever. He bought my brother a drum set, bought me a guitar. And having it so tough, you know, and everybody's got a tough story, but I, I, we moved around so much I could see the way other people were living and I could see the way we lived. And it was definitely different from everybody else. And I knew, so I, I never took anything for granted. You know, he, he bought us instruments and suddenly we're off to the races. We're going to concerts and we're, we bought a little four track cassette player and we're, man, that, that's going to inspire me forever, you know? Yeah. So, you know, getting back to my brother, he was, he moved to Florida around the time I moved to California, met Shane. He moved West with me. You know, we had a band, Edwin Dare and... I'm really proud of that band, but we came out yeah. at the wrong time. We came out in an era where like Nirvana took over and everybody was out of a job. Right. It sounded great. There's a there's a Justice for Tommy Coleman page. Yeah. There's a song on there called Never Had Time, and that sounds killer. I assume yeah. that's you on the guitar. Yeah. Blazing solo. You know, we used to, and, and not to sidetrack, but it's hard to tell the whole story, but we yeah. used to play with all the bands you grew up with, you know, the, the Skid Row Poison, Sebastian Bach knew who yeah. we were, you know, from back in the day, 
we played with all those bands. We played with Dream Theater a number of times. I remember playing with Dream Theater before they had their own tour bus, and we had our local tour bus. And next time we played with them, then the Images and Words had taken off, and they had the big tour bus and invited us on. And wow. Well, the little I know, you guys had an incredible chemistry and obviously played so much. So where were we in the story? So when I moved west, he ended up, Tommy moved to Florida. And, you know, he did well for a long time, but after my father passed away, he just didn't have the support system down there. Uh, some people will say that, you know, for those who don't know the story, my brother was shot by a police officer at three in the morning. He was a mile away from his house going to his house. Uh, I've never really been able to tell the story because in social media, you know, anything you tell is, is right out there for everybody, for the sheriff's department you know, uh, I'm I'm a little more free to speak now. I will say that what happened, I basically my brother had never been arrested in his life, period, until two weeks before this incident. And the same officer that shot him is the same officer that arrested him. And it came out after the arrest. So he arrested him two weeks beforehand. Or yep, and it was loitering. He was he was on a street waiting for a friend, and they said uh, he couldn't justify why he was there. They let him out the next morning. And later on, after, and he died two weeks later, and they said, oh, he had a crack pipe, and he had this and that. Well, I got the, you know, the coroner's report, and there was no drugs in his system. Cops unloaded his gun, 15 shots, shot him four times. They said he had a rifle in the driver's seat of his car. Um, but when I got down there less than 10 hours later after the incident... And the people that came out of the woodwork to talk to me, people that shouldn't talk to me, people from the police force that would lose their job if they knew. And I was too afraid to talk about this five years ago because I thought they would kill me. Um, it didn't add up. There was all these, This it was this web I was in. It was like the movie Training Day when nothing is what it seems, you know? Well. And I realized, and I had people on the inside pulling the reports for me, and I realized this is a whole heavy thing that I can't, I don't see the angles. And now we're getting the social media, all the fans and friends of Tommy's from California to Ohio to, you know, we toured all over the country. We had a good fan base, people in Japan. Everybody wants the answers. And they're respecting me and saying, okay, Jeff's going to let everybody know. And I'm like, I can't tell anybody anything. You know, I really couldn't. Because, number one, I don't know the answers. There was no witnesses. And then it got, you know, weird. I mean, we could have a whole interview just on that. I could spend eight hours explaining everything to you, and I, and I would still leave a bunch of stuff out. It's heavy on so many levels. I it's, mean, yeah. the, the aftermath that you're dealing with, let alone yeah. the emotional thing, you know, you guys were so tight. Yeah. Yeah, we were like Eddie and Alex Van Halen. It's totally. the same thing, just 15 years later, not as good. <laughs> My brother's every bit as good as Alex Van Halen on the drums. I will say that. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to compare myself to Eddie Van Halen. That's pointless. Yeah. Nobody ever should. But my brother was as good as Alex Van Halen. He was like Alex Van Halen with uh, a couple Dave Weckl drum videos. He could yeah. play Latin shit and, you know. Monster. Well, I mean, I know I speak for the whole musical community. Again, it's been several years now or four years, yeah, five uh, years. Yeah, 2012. But yeah, so sorry, man. We're yeah. Just, Unbelievable. What's your favorite memory? If, like, right now, the first thing pops in your head of you and your brother? Man, the old four track days, writing and recording, we'd record stuff, and it was like we were on a, we were on a mission to, 
you know, I didn't know that much about music theory, but I would find myself getting these interesting chord changes and go, I don't know where this is going, but this feels different and new. And, you know, you find yourself playing some kind of cool, like, you know, I'm just this 14 old kid going, oh, I love that. What's that? You know, I can yeah. barely finger it now. <laughs> <laughs> he gets some cool grooves going. And Maybe so, you had a shorter scale guitar back then. Yeah, I did. I twenty. <laughs> uh, this guy, this is the guitar I grew up on. Yeah. Look at that. You know, he and I were on the road so much. I mean, I could tell stories about the guys in the band getting in fights with, you know, all kinds of crazy shit. But Oh, yeah. Uh, I, d I know there's some crazy stories around Jeff Coleman. <laughs> there's a few, yeah. There's, there's many. Um, yeah, so one day I woke up, you know, I always am inspired by situations. Somebody passed away and they're writing a song about that. I do that a lot. You know, it just happens. Um, and some of the best work I've done in the last five years since Tommy died are songs that, you know, I, I, I received a letter from this guy and his wife, and he was the executive producer on Lau Tizer's record. And the wife sent a letter to everybody saying her daughter died and, you know, it was a drug overdose. And I couldn't, I couldn't reply to anything. So... One day, I just and I'm just thinking about Tommy and thinking about, wow, this lady lost her daughter. I have two daughters. And I found myself picking up a guitar, and I wrote a song called A Healing Prayer, and I sent that over to her. And And ended up being this whole, uh, you know, it, it, it it's a life of its own, a song, the way it touches people, and they send that around to other people, and next thing you know, it's getting played at a funeral, this sort of thing. It's like, you know, I just did it because I didn't know what to say to this person, other than, you know, speak through the instrument, so. You know what, um, let me see that yeah, guitar Yeah, please, I, I mean. Actually, I have another idea. Watch this trick. We're going to get really weird. Yeah, bust out the okay. acoustic. Oh, we got lucky there. Yeah, there's your... So, the Tommy Coleman story, you know, when he passed away, and as I was getting to this story, I have total ADD, but I'm getting better these days. You should have seen me when I was 15. Uh, I always knew a song would come from this event that happened, but it was so shocking for me. I was in a, in a trance for, you know, two years just in like this foggy state of existence. But about seven months after he passed away, and I was always thinking, when's the song going to come? Not that I'm trying to write it, but it just comes to me. It's a weird thing how songs come to people. Um, I woke up one day and I had this melody in my head and it was this. You know? Beautiful. But I couldn't finger it. I'm like, well, how do I heard it and... You know, the guitar is a difficult thing, and we always pick it up, and it all sounds the same. It's mm -hmm. like, I hear the melody, but my fingers aren't doing what I want it to do. And I had to get it out. It was 9 in the morning. I had a session with Jono that day, our friend Jono Brown, mutual friend of mine and Jude's. And I called him up. I said, Jono, I have a song. I'm a I can't. I got to get over there. He said, what do you need me to do? He's, I said, just get the reverb ready, get the headphones ready, and I want to come in, sit down, and play. And you can go do whatever you want to do. Just hit record. And then we'll do it. And so, and I'm all nervous that I'm going to lose the song as I'm going to his house. This has never right. happened this way before. But I found myself with the song in my head. And it was the brother to brother. Yeah. 
song. Love that chord. <laughs> It's like a minor nine tuning. That kind of thing. Beautiful. How does the tuning sound by itself? Huh? Where, how did the open six strings sound? Just the... Beautiful. See, the thing for me is that, you know, I'm not like a Guthrie Govan with all these tricks and spider fingers like Holsworth. It's like I just, I just try to find the melody. And so I find myself changing my tunings to keep things interesting, you know. This kind of thing. It's like, totally. Okay. And then I ended up writing other songs with this tuning. This kind of thing. Um, I'm not like Tommy Emanuel where I can, unless I'm doing acoustic gigs, which I don't really do. <laughs> I have a hard time remembering myself. Like, how does well, it go yeah. again? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. That's because you're so but, prolific. Ah, <laughs> uh, sorry. What is it? You know, with guitar, there's so many options with open yeah. strings and, you know, I saw Tommy Emanuel, I met him back in late 1999 in Australia, and I think he was virtually unknown to the for, to most people in the United States. I mean, he was just starting his career as a live, going out there and taking over the world, you know. People in Nashville yeah. knew who he was and, you know. Uh, but it, that was another life-changing experience, and then it got me into playing steel string acoustic. You know, really, he's such an inspiring. Oh, guy. he's he's like the. If if you just music is not a competition, but if somebody said who's the greatest guitar player alive, I go Tommy Manuel. And it's uh, it's like the way that he leads a, even though he barely sings, if at all, at a show, the, he, the way he leads the concert in is such a showman with just an acoustic guitar yeah. and nothing. You know, he's not doing anything crazy other than play incredible, beautiful melodies and yeah. part, incredible tunes, and just the he energy just, on stage. The the way en he, yeah, it's amazing, you know? You know and if he called somebody up on stage, you'd be like, oh, God, don't call me. <laughs> I'm sure Jeff Beck would say, oh, God, I don't want to play. <laughs> I know. Just, well, you, just let Tommy play. I was lucky enough to hire him for a couple of clinics at Musicians Institute, and both times, man, he just... I'd interviewed him before, you know, for a guitar player. Both times he comes, the first thing he does is walk around the entire room. It doesn't matter who's in there, janitor, whoever. Hey, I'm Tommy. Introduce himself. Yeah. Make friends with every. It's like he makes a million friends every day. Yeah. And that's how he is on stage, too. Yeah. So that, that's part of it, too. Monster Travis Bicker, too. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> that guy. Uh, we have the opposite guitar now. Do you want to yeah. show oh, yeah. switch oh, yeah. cables? Oh, yeah. Switch cables. Um, uh, here's yours. All right, I guess cool. I just threw mine on the floor. All right, hey, this so is exciting. I like this. So, what was your first real band with Tommy? Your brother Tommy was it uh, Edwin Dare? Or? No, it was a it was a thing called VXN. Oh, Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vixen. Vixen. So it's a funny right. story because we were this band called Vixen, and somehow the first show. And mind you, nobody knew the other Vixen yet. They're just getting started. They're just getting the record deal in LA. We're yeah. at this local band called Vixen. It was cool with us because we're guys that look like chicks. Vixen, you know, <laughs> right. it's, it was the '80s, right? It was like 1980. Four. 
hair product. Yeah. And um, spandex. <laughs> I think I was cool and I had leather then. All right, cool. You had already upgraded. <laughs> I, I never permed my hair. Just, <laughs> right. you know, again, I just want to be Randy Rhodes. So, uh, so we would get like, I think the first time, honestly, the first time we played out live was like a, we had a keg party, rented the hall, 800 people showed up. It was like, we're fucking awesome. <laughs> and then, and then Jan Cooneyman, I'm probably saying her name wrong. She had passed away, unfortunately. The guitar player from Vixen right. sent me a note saying, Yeah, I heard you tried to steal her name. Congrats on your band. And she was cute and being funny. And she sent me an yeah. 8x10. I was like, Oh shit, Vixen. So we changed our name to VXN because we didn't oh, okay. lose our local fan base. You know, it's it's everything to you when you're living in your little bubble, Toledo, Ohio. Everybody in town, even in Detroit, knows who we are. You know, it it's important to you as an 18 year old kid, of course. And uh, so we changed the name to VXN, and then we ended up hiring Kevin on the bass a little later on. And then that changed to Edwin Dare, Kevin Chung. Yeah, that's Chung. kind of the the quick version. Uh, fast forward 25 years later, Vixen wanted to go out and use the name recently, the female band, and I read where they changed the name to VXN because they couldn't use the, the rights to Vixen for whatever reason. So it was just hilarious. So you, you doubly struck out with your name. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, we, we did a, an EP, a six-song EP back in the day, a vinyl record, and they're, they've sold on eBay for 500 bucks a pop. I just Damn. saw one last week for two ninety nine. Now it's supply and demand. It's like they we only made so many of them. If people want them, you think those are original fans from back in the day dropping I, that kind knows? of coin? Wow! I just got an email from uh, two different comp- record companies in Greece that want to release those on vinyl. So I think we're gonna do a vinyl release with one of them. What was a big vixen riff? Uh, hold on, let's see. Oh, what am I tuning like? You get me all excited here. There was one called Take Your Stand. <laughs> and then halftime. <laughs> Shining still and it seems so unreal. <laughs> I would put my singer, Bryce Barnes, if you did the Pepsi Challenge with the top five metal singers, I'd put him up there. Totally. He's like, for me, and it's only because I play with him, Rob Halford and uh, Ronnie James Steele was because of the number one. Yep. Bryce Barnes. I put him over Jeff Tate. I put him over Bruce Dickinson. Go back and listen to it. Let me know. So what happens after Vixen and Edwin Dare? Or you know, third? basically the, the, the grunge thing took over, and even the bands that had big deals. We had, like, an indie deal, and we had a thing over in Japan and Europe, you know, licensing deals. I think I got through David Chastain. He's like the Cincinnati's Mike Varney. He had Leviathan Records, and he's he's done all kinds of stuff. That would be the best way to put him. He's the Midwest Mike Varney from back in the day. Awesome. He's a great player, but he's more of an artist himself. He's... A, I mean, Mike Varney's actually a great guitar player, but people don't know him as that. Uh, Chastain has had a career, and so, you know, 
Nirvana came out, and what I found is all the clubs that we've been building up, and we had a tour bus, and we had the light man and the sound man and the guitar techs and the road cases and all that crap, and we toured around the country. We had, you know, the merch, a few CDs, T-shirts, all that crap. And But I always wanted to live in California because I'm just watching Paul Gilbert, all these guys move out there, and everybody's getting... You know, it's just the heyday, and it's already yeah. passed. And so, you know, grunge came out, and literally, if you were in that era playing clubs, a lot of those places closed down overnight because Generation X was coming in, and uh, it was a, just a different scene. So I was like, man, and things weren't happening as quick as I wanted. It was a really tough decision to make, and I, you know, I just put the band to rest and moved to California, and that was the most difficult decision ever to make. You know, what was so, it like when you got here? Uh, yeah, uh, I ended up getting a gig. Uh, Shane got me in with MSG, and we ended up on a G3 tour. And um, that was Uli Roth was on the tour. Shane Gallus on drums, yep. Michael Shanker group. And as you're saying, we yeah, we did a G3, five week G3 tour. And then I got home and I got a call from Mike Varney, like two, literally two weeks later, asking me if I wanted to audition for UFO. Man. And I and then I meeting up with Phil Mogg, I wrote a song called uh, "Last Man in Space," and it was really kind of a ripoff of like Mother Mary, like a. Uh Some kind of thing yeah. like that, you know. But getting together with Phil and giving him a song was way cooler than auditioning. It's like I gave, I wrote like three songs when I met up with him. He's like, "Yeah, you got the gig." So uh, interesting. What ended up happening in the process of making this record, they decided not to call it UFO because Phil didn't want to take Michael on. They had signed a, an agreement in 95 that said they couldn't be UFO without each other when they did Walk on Water. But then they had this second demise of their relationship and they knew they weren't going to get back together. But Phil was like, I, God, I really don't want to have to broach the subject with Michael on this. He just, he doesn't like the conflict of, you know, like, who wants to deal with that bullshit? So we ended up calling it Mogway instead of UFO. But it was Paul Raymond, Pete Way. It was the UFO lineup. And I'm really yeah. proud of that. And I really kind of walked the line of being myself and paying tribute to the sound of Michael's guitar and Phil, you know, the interacting. He sings a line and Michael plays, a, you know, some kind of... This kind of... Like, for me, Michael's got the best vibrato in the business. It just has this cry to it. I'm on my single coil, sorry. You know, he turned a wand, right? Dude, that's great, man. You gotta get the blah pedal going. How's it turn? Does this thing work? Right? That's I love the shaker. That's, that's He's great. So great. So yeah, so it's called Mogway Chocolate Box, and that's a that's a cool record that I'm quite proud of. And Simon Wright on drums. It's a good song from there that I might be able to find. Uh, Jerusalem. Awesome. Let's check it out. Yeah.
The riff for Jerusalem's kind of cool. I, I started getting into the uh, CG tuning. You know, I don't want to just write songs that... You know, yeah. we can do that all day long. I wanted something interesting and different. Like, wow. Yeah. I want people to hear and go, what the fuck is that chord? You know, it's like, that doesn't <laughs> sound like anybody but me. You know what I mean? I just yeah. want to find something that's a little different. Not just rock and roll. I want it to have a little bit of color. So the riff on um, Jerusalem. Yeah, it's a drop C, drop G. Uh That kind of thing, you know. Awesome, dude. Sounds like. <laughs> Do you have your uh, Strats bridge like completely backed up? Because you're doing the drop tunings really quickly. Yeah. So this guitar, I can go anywhere. That one, I can't. So I'm holding the one that's got the floating bridge. Yeah. yeah. So if I want to be, you know, try to be Landau, which I can't, I would use that guitar. But this one, yeah, it's yeah. down on the bridge, so I can change my tunings and. It's still active, that bridge? Like, if you can go down, you just can't go up? Or is it just no, blocked it's blocked, off? Yeah. It's blocked off. Yeah. And this one has... Um, so this is the main strat uh, that I've been using for the last, I don't know, how long. I got it. I get most of my guitars, even though I'm a Fender and Dorsey, I get free guitars from Fender. Which is better than a lot of endorsees, I think, at Fender. I mean, there's all different levels of endorsement. In other words, yeah, that's a badass been really endorsement, good. dude. But I find myself buying guitars at Wildwood in, in uh, Louisville, Colorado. I just love that store. You just buy them. You see, like, Greg Cock play one or something? Or you, like, buy it sight unseen? No, no, no. I, I, I go there and visit and end up buying something, and yeah. Awesome. So you're buying these custom shops. This one's a custom shop that yep, I'm holding. It's, it's a Wildwood. It's a 59 uh, Large C. Yeah. And I get John Cruz to go through them, and he's my buddy over at the custom shop. He's my favorite master builder, and and you know he gone he's gone through this one and refretted it for me. And that one's got fatter frets. It looks like than the one. Yeah, I'm this holding. has the sixty one hundred. That is sixty one hundred five. I I prefer the sixty one hundred. Yeah, it was like um, juicy. But and I like the maple neck on this one. I'm Again, always... I have the single coil. Uh, yeah. Humbucker. That kind of thing. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. I always want 22 frets on these strats, these custom shops. They make them like look so vintage, <laughs> but just the one modern feature I want is just that extra fret. Yeah, I, yeah it's hard to be Ingve, isn't it? He gets way the, up yeah. there and it feels like he has 22, you know? Yeah, beautiful guitars, man. So. Yeah. People ask me about that tuning a lot. Uh, it's just drop C and G. It's, it's simple, really. Yeah, you seem pretty comfortable with it. What's that? Ha, ha, ha. 
metal. Show us that tuning. Oh, so open C, open G, and then standard. So I usually just check my G, 7th fret, for that kind of thing. get some nice slash chords, you know, E flat over A flat, that kind of thing. Yeah, kind of cool. So you're out here, and wh- how was that tour when you're out there? What oh, you know the uh, Mogway? Yeah. So Mogway. Here, here's what happened after we put the record out. We did a whole press thing with it, and it was well-received and all that. But the bass player, Pete Way, was in no position to go out and tour. He was just... He's one, he's one of these guys, and he's a sweetheart of a guy. He's a, he's a fucking rock legend. He's like Nikki Six's hero, you know. So yeah. I'm not going to sit here and, and talk bad about Pete, but he's just, he thinks it's better to crash and burn. What like, is it with this business? He's, he's like, he, Sid Vicious is his hero. That's all I have to say, you know? Mm. So he's b- spent the last 40 years trying to abuse himself. He's a wonderful, sweet guy, but he just, for him to go up on stage, and I, you know, I don't know. And they had visa problems, and he's just. A, <laughs> I was like, you know, I want to have a band that can go out on the road. I'm, I'm looking at Pete going, there's no way. So right. what followed that was, I got together with Phil, the singer, Phil Mogg, and uh, he's always been the singer for UFO. They've never had another singer. And I, I said, you know, and I was doing some producing. I said, let's do a Phil Mogg solo record. I'll produce it, and you can get some of your more bluesy. He was into like John Waits and. Or excuse me, Tom Waits. Big difference. Yeah, and uh, and a lot of the old blues guys, you know, Holland Wolf and John Lee Hooker. And I thought, let's do a blues record. Let's do some kind of I don't know what. some kind of you know get an acoustic guitar out and we started jamming and it ended up kind of getting a little more rock again. And he's like, you know what? I don't want it to be a solo record. Let's. I want, I want this to be a band. You know, Shane was on drums and my buddy Jimmy Curtin on bass. So we formed a band called Sign of Four. And uh, and we released a record. I produced it and recorded it in that rental house that we built the garage in. Or excuse me, built the studio in the garage. We never right. told the landlord. <laughs> we did all kinds of records there. I've had Billy Sheehan there and Jolyn Turner and Glenn Hughes. It's hilarious in the rental house. Awesome. Um, but we went out and toured. And we did like a European tour and, you know, England and all that kind of thing. And that was fun. So... And I kind of got into it with the label owner and, you know, things happen. <laughs> and then, so then they were going to reform UFO shortly thereafter. And then Phil called me up and we had a conversation about UFO. But to be honest, I felt like, wow, it's like we're cheating on our band. We created this band. We put this record out and we did the whole thing. And he didn't outright ask, do you want to join UFO? And I kind of also didn't. Because you'll see, if you look on any UFO forum, people are always like, why isn't Coleman playing with UFO instead of anymore? Mm. And Phil put in Classic Rock Magazine, it's like, I just got the feeling he didn't want to. Now, I know that his management, they were pushing for like a Doug Aldridge or somebody. I think Doug was playing with Dio. He wasn't even an option. And if I really wanted the gig, I probably could have got it. But I was probably a little bit standoffish because of Pete Way. I knew he couldn't function. And also that we just had this other band that I was really proud of, and we were doing that. And next thing I know, I get a call from Vinnie Moore, my buddy. 
and we had been friends for a while. And he's like, hey, I got a call, you know. Hey, he calls me J.K. Zona. He's A. Zona. And he said, I got a call, you know, about playing with UFO. I was like, oh. He said, should I do it? What do you think? Well, you know, those guys. What's it? I, and I just flat And I, at that point, I kind of just put myself out of the picture. I'm like, I'm not going to do this gig. And I told Vinny, I said, you know what? You have to decide for yourself. I said, there is, you know, Phil drinks a bit and he gets a little ornery and... You know, but he's great. Pete Way is a whole thing. And I know Vinny's a very cautious person. You know, he's just one of those, like, he's just one of those guys He's, you know, better safe than sorry kind of. Um, funny enough, he, he, he was playing with uh, Alice Cooper, my first rock star audition. I went out and auditioned when, when Vinny decided not to do the gig. After Al Petrelli did it, and then Steph Burns and these guys came in, and Vinny was going to do it, then he didn't. Then I flew out to do it, and they didn't pick me. And the original guy asked for his gig back. So Vinny was, that was another <laughs> gig where he was like, you know, I, he, he ended up not doing it. But uh, but he did UFO. He, yeah, he's still in the band. I saw them once at the Key yeah, Club. Yeah, and they're Man, great. He was, and he's, he was crushing. He's crushing it. He's perfect, you know? Yeah, he was... Uh, and and I don't know why people always, you know, they always have to compare and just, you'll get people go, right, you know, Vinny this or... Coleman should be... I'm like, I shouldn't be the guy. He's the guy. He's fucking perfect for that band. He, the guy's got more technique. Like, people are gushing over Guthrie Govan, who's a god. Vinny played like that 25 years ago with his fucking chops. He's got chops for... It's like a he's a he's a demon on the guitar, you know? Yeah, he, his notes were coming through. It was yeah. great. And even when he was playing a lot of notes, they were still coming through, which yeah. I love. I might do another record yeah. with Phil sometime if, if the timing makes sense. You know, for me, things just have, have to happen organically, you know? Yeah. It's really the thing. You have to... I look back on stuff and I go, well, I know why I didn't do this gig and I know why I didn't do that gig, you know, and, and I'm happy with the choices I make and there's reasons why I take gigs and there's reasons why I don't. Hey, well, it's good to have choices available. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've done, I mean, I can't even name all the different artists you've played with. When did Glenn Hughes or am I jumping too far ahead? No, uh, I started working with Glenn shortly after... That era, I, I, we used to do some. Me and a, a friend of mine, Mark Rank, we created this production team, and we used to do a lot of the kind of the K rock, you know, up and coming bands. That Jay Bumgarden wasn't. We would almost develop them for Jay, and <laughs> he would, you know, over at Energy, and it was a whole yeah. thing. But budgets kind of got a lot slimmer, and so I found myself just, you know, not wanting to produce so much. But Glenn Hughes came along. We formed a band called. Shape 68 that never saw the light of day. It was he, I, and Robin DiMaggio. And uh, that's a whole story, but I ended up doing a solo record for Glenn called Songs in the Key of Rock, which I co-wrote and mixed and produced for him. And he had some guest players on there. That's when we met Chad Smith. Now check this out. And again, you know, uh, I had hired Ed Roth to do some uh, session stuff, and I don't know if him and Glenn actually knew each other at that point, or if I hired, brought Ed in to do the Glenn session. I just can't remember. 
uh, Gary Ferguson was the drummer on this stuff, and he's going back to the Glenn and so many groups. I think Hughes Thrall with Pat Thrall. And Glenn's Patrick. another great voice in rock. Well, you know, the thing about Glenn Hughes is like, from a marketing standpoint, people didn't. Glenn Hughes is Stevie Wonder's favorite white singer, but he was the bass player that followed Roger Glover in Deep Purple. So what would happen is people would go see the California Jam and they'd see Coverdale. He was the new singer that just got the gig. He was a shoe salesman when Glenn met him. Hmm. Glenn got him in the band, and there they are playing in front of 300,000 people. They're playing Burn, you know. Mm-hmm. The. And then the and then the bridge comes in, you know, and and Glenn's singing the the big, you know, we had no time that that thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the whole audience is like, whoa, listen to that voice. He's just got you know way more open and high range than Coverdale, and people are like, fuck, the bass player should be the singer. <laughs> <laughs> He's a monster. He's a monster. So it was always kind of a secret that he was this you know incredible singer. But, uh, you know, he's like Stevie Wonder and, and frickin' uh, Chris Cornell all in one guy. It's amazing. Totally, that's a good description. Yeah. And he's one of the greatest uh, living singers. And, you know, I've sat three feet away from him countless hours producing him. And he walks in the room, hey, Coleman, we're going to do three songs, and then we're going to go get some fixings down and by Northridge Mall. <laughs> like, <laughs> and he sings this stuff so fast, you're like in and out of there. You know? Yeah. That's it's awesome. amazing. So there I was, you know, I've only been in LA like two years, three years, and I'm working with my heroes. And he's like, hey, we're going to get Steve I in this song. Great. Billy Sheehan, great. Uh, and then the next record came along, and it was Glenn Hughes and Jolyn Turner. They're doing HTP, Hughes Turner Project. And I was mainly the producer on there. It was uh, this guy, JJ Marsh, Swedish guitar player. He's like one of my favorite guitar players. He just has everything in his playing. And he was the main guitar player on that. It was a band they had. And again, it was yeah. Shane on drums. Shane is just global. Yeah. <laughs> guys everywhere. And uh, they brought Steve Vai in for a solo on... Oh, it's such a great hook on the tune. What's funny is Vai soloed all the way to the end of the song. And then Glenn said, okay, solo's over to fade him out. And then, because the vocals come back right. in. You know, Steve just gave us something all the way to the end. But yeah, so that was a cool experience. And it was tough working with Joe and Glenn because it's two big egos and but they were sweet and wonderful and you know amazing though and joe sounds i mean that was 15 years ago he sounded as good as uh, lou graham you know who's great. one of the greatest aor rock singer american rock singers in history totally. you know who's a, him and brad delb and you know yeah. you got these greats like paul rogers and of course the great one freddie mercury and Right, let's play some, man. I can't sit here with these yeah. guitars too long without uh, hearing some some culmination. Let's see. What key? F sharp. I'll play. Let me start up with rhythm. Yeah. Oh, let's go major. You go, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna go major on the B. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Tuning time. I love the way you have, man. Nobody that I can think of really has such a hard edge and then also the fusion jazz edge mixed in such strong degrees. Oh. Where did you start picking up all of your uh, fusion and like, you know, outside scales and alter yeah. dominance and stuff like that? When I was a teenager, well, I studied with this guy, Dan Fanley. He was guitar player for Diana Krall later on, but he was the local jazz guy. And I walked into a music store and it sounded like Pat Martino playing all these lines like, whoa. And I took just a couple lessons from him. He's like, you need to go to the guy that taught me. And there's this cat in town called Gene Parker. And um, he's literally like, plays like Charlie Parker. He plays everything but guitar. He plays sax, piano, vibes, upright, and flute. And I go to this guy's house and take a lesson. And just, you know, I'm playing guitar, but he's talking about Bill Evans' chord changes and voicings. And, okay, kid, let's play through the cycle for us. Here we go. <laughs> you know, here, kid, there's Art Tatum. Whoa. Just blow my mind, you know? I walk in the room thinking, I'm, I'm not going to fucking play like Eddie Van Halen. And he's like, okay, let's, let's you know, do your dominant sevens in the cycle of four starting on the flat seven. He put on the metronome. He'd play a flute. He'd play piano. He could just burn me on every instrument. Damn. But he didn't play guitar. So that was a nice introduction to jazz. And he really spent, we spent a lot of time listening to records too and the history of jazz. And I, I kind of know the history of jazz like I do the history of rock, you know? Wow. And I wasn't as much of a fusion guy. I loved Alan Holsworth and John Schofield, Mike Stern, and Steve Kahn, a couple guys like that. But I was never really a Mojave Issue guy. And, you know, these, right. I just, I was a heavy metal kid that got into bebop. That's good. I, you were into the two extremes yeah. and put them together so in the middle. Them together. <laughs> but no, it, was, it was great to study with him. And he's still around. He's still in Toledo. He's inspired so many musicians and. Do you remember one particular concept that sticks out one day that you walked in there and learned and walked out with? You know, that's a good question. You know, he used to talk about different ways of playing through chord changes, but he also talked about the gravity of playing a phrase. And this kind of gets into Coltrane stuff where you can you can play through like a cycle of force, even if the changes aren't there, you know, because you have a gravity of and momentum of an idea. And you can just kind of force it over the top of something, you know. And to hear him, and I wish I could just blast some shit out right now, but I'm right. not gonna. <laughs> but, you know, he's such a great yeah. player for that. But if I was sitting yeah. here teaching a, a kid, you know, and he comes in, he's all these chops and whatever, I would say, okay, you know, let's play something in a cycle of force. Let's just take like a, a voicing, major seven. And say like three notes, C, E, and B. And, you know, yeah. on the guitar, you have to learn to the problem is it's so easy to cheat because you can rely on patterns. Yeah. And the problem is you're relying on patterns so you're not thinking about the notes. Next thing you know, you're in the wrong key. You know, that's why guitar players make the worst sight readers and they have a tough time playing in B flat, A flat, and F because they're just not used to playing. Ted Nugent didn't play in A flat. He played in A, <laughs> right? So I always take things in a cycle. And think about that. So C, F, B flat, E flat, A flat, D flat, G flat, B, E, A, D, G, C. So you run an idea, you practice an idea, and then once you come up with an idea, you run it through the, the cycle, cycle of fourths. Yeah. And it could just be, hey, yeah. power chords. If 
you'll give somebody a chord, and I'm talking about a you know a solid intermediate to advanced guitar play. They'll sit in the chair next to me, and I'll go, okay, C7. Okay, give me F7 right below. They'll go, and I'll go, no, okay, yeah. Uh, B flat seven. Uh, hmm. They're not thinking about yeah. how to compensate for the second string. Those three shapes look completely different. Right. That's a good starting yeah. point. For I know just a... you know, right? It's funny the guitars got that tuning. You know. Yeah. It goes back to what you're saying: open tunings to create some music. I know yeah. some badass bass players. They shred on guitar, but they won't go past the third string because that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do a lot of that, like cycle force kind of stuff. You know, it yeah. could be diminished thing, dominant thing, whatever. You know, right yeah. on through. And then you can get out flashcards. This is one thing my teacher used to do. Getting back to your question, what he used yes. to do, he he'd write each key out on the flashcard, and for some it'd be G flat F sharp because. F sharp minor looks better than G flat, and then the major I prefer right. G flat. And then you just shuffle them, throw them down, put on the metronome, play. Maybe one guy yeah. plays rhythm, one guy plays, and it's just you know random. E A flat. Oh, here comes G flat. It's just whatever it is, and you're trying to string a line together and have phrase imitation and this sort of thing. Nasty. That's so, a rough exercise right there. It's a good way to practice. <laughs> Well, it's it shows, man. So yeah, lately I've been, you know, Jerry Bergonzi, the great sax player. He has, he has one where he goes through twelve keys, and like a minor. So like, so he'll do um, C minor, then he'll go up a major third to E minor, then he'll go up a major third to A flat minor. So it's two major third intervals. Now he's yeah. going to do a minor third interval just to break it up. B minor. Now it's back to the. Now we've created the pattern. Two major thirds, a minor third. Wait, so where do we start? C. C major. I've, so, heard, of, I've heard of that key. Right? C minor. E minor. Now e, uh, A flat. B, minor third. So that's the minor third. Yeah. E flat, which is a major third. G. B flat, minor third. So we did G, we did B flat, now the next key would be D. So it's two major thirds, then one minor third. It sounds so. nice. Here, here, I'll play for you. But now I'm lost. One, two, three. I'll get four. lost. Up to E minor. Second major third up to A flat minor. I'm going to go up a major third. Yep. Major third to G. B flat. Up to D minor. F sharp. F sharp minor. Start all over again in A. Yep. It's great. That's, yes, so what you do nice. is you're, you're playing a phrase like whatever it may be, right? Then I can go yeah. oh. right for A flat. <laughs> Maybe I'll stay on that note because it's the minor nine of B. Dude, you're deeper than you act. 
I gotta say, because I've seen all you, you know, I've seen you just blaze at the potato and all the stuff, but you've really. Well, I try not to yeah. think too much. Yeah, it's, well, it's good. You know, I, I, just wanna... I like that you have your feet in both worlds. You got the deep sort of scientific study music, and then the total visceral. Anyone who knows you, you play like. Yeah, cool. A Cosmo Squad shit. Yeah, it's fun. The Eighteen albums fun. of like <laughs> just explosiveness, right? How many Cosmo Squad albums are there? Uh, well, you know, I I tend to end up doing like four records for each band, so it's like you know four or five solo records, four or yeah. five Cosmo Squad, four Meat Bass, yeah. and three or four Edwin Dare, and a couple albums. of these, and yeah. So I, I guess when you, you when you, you add you've them got all like up, eighteen this... of your own albums, yeah. basically. Yeah. Now um, let's hear one off of your latest one, which is Morbid Tango. I guess. Yeah. How about the title track? whole guitar is a whole step down so it's d a i actually have to look at my tuner now just kidding this just <laughs> came off an airplane so and then f c so everything's down a whole step and this is my fuji again les paul and then my a is down a whole step to g and then i have a drop c so it's basically like a drop d that we all do like when we're trying to right. play Unchained, but then right. everything's down a whole step. Gotcha. So, simple. So, yeah, it's one of these... Uh... Funny, Shane's yeah. like, yeah, let's start the record off with a tango. I'm like, what's a tango again? <laughs> I mean, I know what a tango is, but we just kind of listen for a second. Oh, yeah, tango, yeah, of course. He knows, and then, I barely know what a tango is. I, I've I've recently learned what a uh, mambo is, yeah. which I love. I've learned this awesome tune. I got to show it to you just yeah, because. Yeah, absolutely. Sidetrack here. This is the coolest melody. Perez Prado. <laughs> yeah. It's so much fun. That's like a. Yeah. So that's a mambo. But what the heck is a tango? Yeah, it's, that, yeah, it's kind of pulsing, yeah. So yeah. we play, I think, like, I throw in some chromatic, you know, uh, diminished yeah. stuff. Yeah. Which are maybe not necessarily tank, we're, we're yeah. slowly getting oh, yeah. out of it, and then it gets into a heavy... Uh, good old power chords. <laughs> you get such a heavy distorted tone, like again another one, like anatomy of a beatdown at yeah. the end of that. Just yeah, sick that's kind distortion. Of like a... I think I have more of a single coil, like a. And what are, 
thing. What was your signal path for that sound at the end there of anatomy of a beatdown? What happens at the end of the song? Bar chords or? Yes. Sometimes I'll play the. I'll have to combine live the chords and the and the melody because that one is an overdub. I have the chords yeah. playing, you know, and a lot of times I'll have the bass just droning D, sure. and then the movement underneath. It's kind of Beethoven-esque, five chord over the one chord, and then the minor, uh, uh, minor nine, five chord with the second in the bass yeah. I don't want to just go uh, I'm always looking for a different way to p- play the voicing oh dude I'm you know? so with you I spend more time doing that than like I've never even tried not once to like use an extra finger to tap I'm not interested in any of that I'm just not yeah. I never try to play with my teeth I've never picked up the guitar and go oh what if I try well, it's just, I, we I'm all not... try that once. Some people <laughs> enjoy excruciating sensation of string on tooth, yeah. but most of us are like, fuck that. <laughs> I love people that can do all that. You know, the Michael Angelo guys. It's great for them. Right. For me, I'm, I spend my time just trying to write inspired melodies and songs and look for an interesting chord voicing and a good sound. Yeah. I want a good tone. Dude. So I don't spend so much time on the other stuff, like you know, tapping with the blah blah blah. And I mean, I can do the regular, you know. Right. Maybe this is a good chance, to, just for a second. I mean, real quickly, take us through your sort of dual pedal board setup here. You on first of all, what's the main controller? You got a switcher there, yeah, switching all your effects. There's a company called Free the Tone in Japan, and they designed this whole board for me. And you know, it all stems back to the genius of Bob Bradshaw originally. But what this is, this is the pedal board. This is the switcher and router all in one. And so the pedals, as you know, each have their own little loop. So you can choose how many in whatever combinations of them you want on. Yeah, just leave so, them all on. Leave them all on all the time and then, and then choose what you needed. need. What's nice about it is I've got um, a delay and reverb that's also controlled by it. And they have four presets as well. Well, the delay has m- many presets. The reverb has four different that I've chosen. So it's switching with this. So I can have a nice big clean. And then on this one, nice tight roomy thing. This one maybe a little more Gary Moore. It's a nice reverb in there. Then there's a serene setting that's really like ethereal. And this is all designed by Free the Tone. A lot of people give me grief on, they say, well, your culmination pedal isn't on the board. It actually is on the board. It's this one here, the gold one in the upper right-hand corner that had my address on there. (laughs) I scraped it out. Especially before you go to Japan, because there's so many photos are going to be taken. Yeah. You might want to cover up your address. Exactly. So that's the prototype. That's the single channel prototype that we originally had done. And I don't want to put the two channel on there because I don't keep both left and right on at the same time usually. It's just yeah. one or the other. And since I'm not switching yeah. these in and out, that's so the way So people I do aren't it. recognizing the prototype. 
Right. But it's there. So the clean sound, basically, for this setup, I'm using the EP Boost and the SP compressor. Actually, right now, just the SP compressor on a very mild setting. That is a great compressor, the exotic SP. Yeah. I've, I've been really impressed with it. It just adds a little bit. There's without it, there's with it. This makes me sound a little better. Sometimes, like, I, I don't think I could hear the difference. Like, it's almost like a f compression is sometimes for the player. It yeah. feels different when you're playing it, but they'll... Yeah. It's just yeah. a little rounder on those notes. And yeah. then uh, the second preset, I have the Zing Wand. You know, there's no trickery pedals in here. They're all just different gain or compression pedals. There's no... There's not even a chorus pedal on this board. You know, I right. just, I found a recipe for this pedal board that I really like certain tones. And I'm like, I have to have this set up. I don't care about wah or anything. <laughs> this is yeah. what I need. So this is just a Zing one with a nice slapback, which is cool if I have a Strat right now, but that kind of thing, you know. And then this is the culmination and the 808. I find a nice, really creamy lead tone with this. And this yeah. is just the culmination by itself, which is when I was playing that, uh, you know. I can get away with those kind of big chord. That's got a flat five and a minor third and all that crap. And this there. Marshall head you're running through—is there an effects loop going on? Or yeah. You, so you are—you do get a little bit of gain from that and then run. Yep. Through the effects loop for the reverb and the echo. Yep. And I've never seen those free the tone reverb and the echoes before. Amazing. Yeah, they just came out with the <laughs> reverb and they're very complex. Like, it's like a spaceship. Like, I think yeah. All those number readouts. All yeah. Those There's one pedal that's all over the Morbid Tango, and that is the F Bomb Three. Check it out. It's supposed to be a little ugly, you know? Yeah. Kind of a cool sound. So... Easy to play fast with it, really. Yeah. I wouldn't play rhythm so much, but check out how it cleans up. Tuning. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful pedal. It's on Jeff. You can find out more about it on jeffcoleman.com. That's right. Order jeffcoleman.com. You know, another pedal that we did was the uh, Chotamante Kudasai. Steve Lukather, as you know, in print said this is the best pedal he's ever used. <laughs> <laughs> really? What's yeah. it called? He actually said it in print. It's called the Bomb Distortion. And uh, this is the one that's kind of based on the Meat Bat guitar sound, which isn't, you know... The way I play in the Bombastic Meat Bats, there's no heavy metal in it. I leave those influences behind. And it's more the, for lack of a better word, 
it wouldn't get heavier than like a Gary Moore. It's more like the you know Robin Ford, Larry Carlton melodies, and then the seventies funk kind of thing. Yeah. So we designed a pedal that is big and fat and thick, but it's not heavy metal. It's hard rock to blues to you know. It's a big fat tone. Like I don't think a Gary Moore's yeah. a heavy metal player. He never was. Even Thin Lizzy, it's not heavy right. metal. So uh, that pedal, yeah. I, I emailed Luke recently. I said, hey, can I exploit you? <laughs> he said, absolutely. Go right ahead. I love that pedal. Yeah. The way he's using it, he's using it in front of his Bogner dirty sound. And when he needs more for his leads, he hits the pedal. Now, speaking of Japan, you have this fantastic gig with... Yeah, Ikiji Yuzawa. With a- you know what? Here's <laughs> the deal. Yuzawa. Check this out. So if if I when I first got over there and I explained pe- to people who I was playing with, I said it like that and nobody knew who I was talking about. I'm like, hey, I thought this guy was famous. <laughs> Which he is. First off, they usually say their last name first. Yuzawa Achan. Achan means like uh, you'd be J-Chan. It's like, you know, uh, Jeff San, endearing. Chan is more endearing. So they they scream Achan. And he is to Japan what Paul McCartney is to the UK. I know. Look at your past (laughs) tours that you've done. Like, you know, all sold out arenas, including five nights in a row at Budokan. Sold out, which is nutty. Tokyo Dome. Yeah. All sold out. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment in the show at the Tokyo Dome where the whole stage and the... two guitars, bass, and Yazawa are going over the entire audience. We can see them underneath us through a glass stage, and we go out about 150 yards. There's a point where I'm about 150 yards out from Jimmy Pax and looking back at my drummer. Hmm. And, you know, it's just this insane show. Whoa. And all the pyrotechnics and, you know, it's just amazing, the production That's level. But the thing, But the thing about this show and this artist... Um, he introduced rock and roll to Japan in 1969 with his band Carol, and they were very much in the style of the Beatles. It sounds like revolver, rubber sole Beatles, leather jackets, and he is their Elvis. He's their everything, you know, and he's such a talented musician. I can't even tell you. I've never played with anybody that knows how to put together a show like him. I've watched some clips. I mean, he's he's got a little... Springsteen in him, a little he, Michael Jackson in him. Yeah, and he definitely, Mick Jagger's one of his heroes. Ja- yeah, dude, he's got it all. I think he's he made more money than all of them. <laughs> I hate to say it. <laughs> he's he's yeah, he's incredible. Astounding. He's so inspiring um, on every level because he runs the whole show. Like the first big venue we do, you'll see him in the audience with a microphone telling everybody about the lighting cues. Every aspect of the show is him. And then he gets up on stage and sings for two hours and he's running around the stage like Mick Jagger. He's never out of breath, never out of tune. Amazing. Amazing. Is, do you ever, does he have breakfast with the band ever, or do you ever you see know, him? He, What's the deal? Yeah, then? he hangs uh, dinner. He'll, he'll call some dinners with us. And he's just, he's a, he's uh, the coolest guy ever. There's It's like the greatest gig you can ever have, because <laughs> there's no drama. Yeah. And, you know, we're like best friends with the tour manager. And basically, in that organization, he is the king, and everybody is an employee. But he never makes you feel that way, so he calls the shots. If he's happy... Everybody's happy. You never have anybody below him, like, down on you, telling you what to do. After every gig, I feel like the winning quarterback of the Super Bowl. That's how they make you feel. You know, if you were, like, yeah. a second secondary guitar player in the Rolling Stones, there's going to be dramas between Mick and this guy. And I mean, I read Keith's book, so there's got to be drama. <laughs> but in this organization, it feels like you're in the Stones, but 
Yeah, there's no drama. And you have room to play. I go from playing ethereal to nylon, like uh, Earl Clue, to hard rock where I feel like I'm in the Scorpions and uh, or, or Sting, you know, with like the Fields of Gold kind of ethereal vibe. I mean, slide guitar, you get everything. You get some moments where you're in one spot on the stage, you get to walk out, or how's it work? Oh, yeah. We're not like sidemen. We're all over the place. He gets us out in the out on the catwalk and you name it because it's a big band i noticed there's like horn section a lot of times yeah he keeps some guys off in the back basically (laughs) it's two guitars bass drums and keys who's the other guitar player well when i got the gig it was toshi anagi our friend who was also people know him from the jimmy kimmel show yeah he was just on this show a couple episodes ago so he had been playing with yuzawa for 10 years and they did decide after we did that tour um they got rid of toshi and it bummed me out because we were the perfect combination. And for whatever reason, you know, he put me in Toshi's place and then he got a Japanese guitar player that lives in Japan to take the place of me in the other position. And But now I'm featured more and sometimes they don't have the other guitar player in certain songs. And, you know, they make decisions that sometimes you don't agree with. You know, you're like, wow, we had the perfect lineup when it happened. I mean, Toshi's one of yeah. my favorite guitar players in LA, right? Absolutely. And uh, so that was a bummer. But, you know, Yuzawa, he has his reasons for things. And, you know, Toshi and him had a 10-year run, and that's great. But I do miss him on the gig, and I love him, and he's fantastic. And uh, 10 years in any band anywhere is amazing <laughs> right even if that's a wedding band yeah you know it's amazing the bass player george has played with him for 30 years now it's like Dang. 30 years this year that's a good job how many shows a year do you do with Izawa? you know usually it's like i think like 17 18 shows just, just days off you know a lot of two weeks of rehearsal i think uh we're gonna go you know three months this coming winter any crazy moments happen on stage that were unexpected <laughs> any, yeah not in <laughs> japan though but uh you know, I, I've had everything happen. Um, I almost burned to death playing Burn in Russia. Literally, Damn. like, I'm playing with Glenn Hughes at the Kremlin Palace. And unbeknownst to me, the production company has 30-foot flames that are going to come out when we say Burn. Now, we didn't even sound check the song. We're just up there to play three songs for TV and for a full audience. It would be good of them to tell you about that. And it's like a Kiss-sized concert stage. And I'm between the monitors hamming it up. I got a wireless, all that, you know. We got all kinds of room to ham it up. And I just walk back to go to the mic to sing Burn with him because I sing the harmony. And I take two steps away from the front and the flames come, you know. Right where you had been standing. Right where I had been standing. Uh, I had been choked twice in Russia. (laughs) I was on a night train from... um, Moscow to St. Petersburg, and I was hanging with Dan McCafferty, the singer from Nazareth. We're in the back bar drinking, and he's drinking Remy XO, and I'm drinking beer, <laughs> smoking, smoking like nonstop. And then I went to a standing bar with my uh, bandmates and crew, and literally an old Russian guy came up and he just started choking me. And then my, I had a tour manager slash bodyguard guy that just knocked him out. And this happened two different times where I think. You're just having fun being yourself, and this guy, like, you know, something from a throwback from, you know. That's wild. Yeah. You're a choke magnet. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Three years ago, I was mugged. Actually, my tour manager was mugged in Cape Town, South Africa. I was playing the Cape Town Jazz Festival. We're walking down the street. Who are you playing with? Yourself? Uh, it was the Lautizer band. Cool. And we've done many records, and 
toured. I know he tours a lot. I never time. realized he got to Cape Town. That's amazing. Yeah, he so, gets on a lot of jazz festivals. So what happened? And uh, he decided to urinate on a palm tree. It was one of those streets that doesn't have traffic going down. It's just more for looks. And th- during the day, it's you know nice tableside lunch, whatever. It and is. I hear a scuffle, and I turn around and look, and he's been the tour manager for like Al McKay and the Jacksons. His name's uh, John Baker. And two brothers, and he's a brother himself, 59. He's been drinking plenty of Jack Daniels all night. And uh, they knocked him down, and they're, they're like hitting him and taking his wallet and shit. So I, you know, my brother used to beat me up. I kind of know how to fight, even though I'm a skinny little kid. I just go for it. And they started on me too, so I just went right for kneecaps and noses, and we got the hell out of there. Fought him off, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so that was that's exciting. Damn, what a moment. <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be uh, rougher in the jungle, and we did the safari over there Lau and i but ended up uh, in the city was uh, the tougher part of it hey man when t- trouble strikes you know, that's the thing you never can expect it you never expect it and you know in my mind i'm just thinking oh i'm gonna die so how are you gonna react i'm just gonna use all the strength in my body to to fight this off and i'm not gonna stand there and you know i just go and, and you have to be quick they chose the wrong skinny guitar player that's to right. mess with that night and you can ask john baker he'll say man <laughs> if i'm getting in a fight i want you to back me up <laughs> Andy, have you witnessed or taken part in any crazy rock and roll pranks? We just had Richie Kotzen on. It was so funny, some of the stuff that he's done. God, yeah, he's a funny guy. Uh, You know, uh, Christopher Maloney used to be in the band. He used to pull all kinds of stuff. I don't want to get him in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's one of those guys, the fire extinguisher in the hallway as you're leaving for the venue. Next thing you know, you go to the bar and you come back that night and you forget and the hallway's just covered with the... The foam from the extinguisher. You know, there's all that kind of crap. It's so childish. Uh, uh, I was in Japan if, w- with the Meat Bass with Chad, our dear friend Chad Smith. Um, it's nice to have a rock star playing drums for you once in a while. And we were over there touring. And I couldn't get to sleep one night, so I took an Ambien. And this is back in MySpace. I was MySpace in with my friend who is, works at a bar in Osaka. And but man, I can't sleep. And it's tough sleeping over there. So I took the Ambien. Laid down. The next thing I knew, bam! Uh, apparently, I was walking, sleepwalking naked, which I don't even sleep naked. Not that you need to know that I don't. <laughs> and I ran right into the a corner wall in the hallway, walking at a fast pace. And instantly, I'm totally coherent. I look down. I got blood running from my head. I'm naked. What? I look up. I see a Japanese guy looking at me from down the hall, <laughs> horrified. <laughs> Oh, I knocked man. on Jono's door. We took him along as a, you know, he engineered our record. So I thought, well, let's take Jono along on vacation. Anyway, I realized, okay, room 303, Jono, open the door. He opens the door, looks at me, looks down, looks up. Okay, come on in. <laughs> like no <laughs> big deal. Like George Costanza, ah, come on in. Put, put on a robe on me and then I was back to my room. So don't do ambient and drink. Oh, we've all heard weird ambient stories. That one congressman that was sleep driving <laughs> yeah. and crashed into something. Yeah, you can't do that. You know, no, this I is the, the theme song when you're doing ambient. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I remember we had Chad Smith at Musicians yeah. Institute, MI, and I believe you were there. Yeah. Yeah, it was a meat bat. So yeah, like I know two, you've done two, three 90% of it, right? Yeah. Or of all of it? Most yeah, all of it. You've done it. Okay, you are one of the meat bats <laughs> yeah that stemmed from hiring shad to play with glenn and then we would do some one-off shows with glenn hughes and then 
at times, Chad tells the story as we're waiting for Glenn to rehearse at some whatever rehearsal studio and him being late. Ed, I, and Chad would just jam. And we're like, man, we should do some of this. It feels kind of like Jeff Beck, funky 70s, you know. Oh, you know, I got to jam with him for two I auditioned for the Chili Peppers back in like 93 when they had a massive cattle call. I got yeah. a nice little 15-minute jam with him and Flea. Yeah. I bet that was great. It was great. Just And there was, I had learned all these songs, but they were just like, let's just go for it. And it was, and yeah. Yeah. That's when I realized what a funkopotamus he was. Yeah. Chad's great. Well, anyway, it was so funny when he walks out on stage at MI because it's complete, one of the most packed clinics we ever did. Probably 500 people in yeah. that room. And he comes, they said, ladies and gentlemen, Chad Smith. And he just comes rolling out on stage and the drum set's all lit up, but he doesn't even go to the drum set. He's up there looking like Will Ferrell. Yeah. Grabs a He's mic. He's so funny, right? Just like looking at, hey, what's up, everybody? How you doing? He's like kind of walking around. <laughs> Picks some guy in like the second row. He's like, hey, what's up, man? Hey, what's your name? Hey, who's that girl sitting next to you? Is that your girlfriend? <laughs> Do you want her to be your girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. Talking. He's man. hilarious. His 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 microphone uh, antics are great, man. Uh, I There's plenty of stories with him on the road, but I'm not going to tell any of them. Yes, you are. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's always at the end of the shows, he's always busting up the drum kit back, especially when he was drinking back in the day. I think for the last gig, he act, asked for an axe and some lighter fluid, but the promoter wouldn't give it to him. <laughs> Smart promoter. Yeah. Yeah. He's insane. You can't give the artist everything. No. But yeah, Chad's great, man. I love playing with him and we're going to do a new record. I think we're going to start writing this year. Well, let's hear a track off of like the meat and potatoes record, huh? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Uh, how about uh, Passing the Ace? That's a good classic. I love Chad, man. He's a great player. He's, he's got this intangible funk groove in the way that Bonham had this intangible rock groove, you know? Yeah. But you don't realize it until you play with him. I've been fortunate to play with a lot of great drummers, and they're all different. And they all have their special things, you know, the Joel Taylor, the Raul Pineda. Or I play with Matt Soren, he's great, and Ray Luzier, and I'm name-dropping, I don't care. Uh, Danny Carey. But Chad has a thing that's different than all of them. And the one thing that he does, he has a swing in his funk room, man. It's just so, it's just, it, I believe it's part of the reason that the Chili Peppers are as famous as they are. There's something in that groove between him and Flea that just feels good. And what he'll do is if you get into phrases, you start playing some kind of thing in, during a solo. Maybe you get into some kind of two, three, four, one. He'll play off it. But he, he, he has a way of playing off the soloist, but not losing the groove. Yeah. Where it doesn't get to, you know, falling over. I totally noticed that in that 10 minutes that I played with him. Not that I was playing what you just played. Right. <laughs> but still. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. You start yeah, playing yeah. you start playing accents and he'll catch them with you. Because sometimes with other drummers that I've played with, and they're great too, not a competition, but I'll be soloing. I'm out there on the diving board by myself and the drummer's only focused on the bass player and what the pocket they have going on. And I love it when the drummer comes out there and creates chaos with me. If I start getting chaotic and I'm, we're in a frenzy and I'm doing some, I don't know what, 
then he's playing these lines with me. It's like, ah, thank you. You're helping me here. You're you're validating. Yeah, the energy rises. Yeah. The frenzy. Yeah. So he's cool like that, and uh, more drummers should do that. (laughs) Now, um... Before we go, we got to talk about shedding skin. What's, yeah. the, what's the deal? You got you're remastering and re-releasing. Yeah, uh, that's always been my favorite solo record, and um, I just uh, God, it's going on like twenty years. <laughs> and you know, I I wanted, and I have this wonderful mastering guy that I found in Bulgaria, and he's just the best. He mastered the 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 uh, Morbid Tango, and mastering is like the you know the final frontier, right, of of your sonic spectrum. And I always liked the way the record sounded originally, but it was darker. And I just, I wanted to get it out there again and give it some new life. And uh, yeah, I always loved that record. I'm really proud of it. And Let's hear a bit of it. The new remaster. Sheer drama. Be a good one. The wah tone on that is sick. I think I'm tuned on the C sharp. It's just kind of, uh. It's in seven. And then over that, you get this, you know, kind of a Lydian, that kind of thing. Yeah, you're doing nice stuff with your volume pedal there. Yeah. Little Ernie Ball volume. Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing, the recording was down a half step and then there was a different tuning, but live, it's it's a whole nother thing. It's very confusing. That's the thing when you got a bunch of tunings. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, again, the chorus of that one, it sounds like you're just playing one chord like F minor, but it's not. It's D flat major seven over F. Sorry right. about the tuning, but it's these kind of things, you know, like let's say you're, you're writing a song and you're looking for a, some chord changes. Let me let me, tune, let me tune standard here. Instead of playing an F sharp minor, right? We know that progression. Maybe instead of playing F sharp minor, maybe you'll play a D major seven with an F sharp bass. Maybe it's A over E. You know? Maybe it's instead of just. Yeah. That's cool too. Right. But what I find is that when you have a little more extension in the chord and then you play a note that is in the chord or could have been in the chord, now you've got magic. You know, when Gary Moore, like, for instance, still got the blues, could have been this. Suddenly it's like Mel Bay book one. But he adds a couple of notes, like the G over the D minor seven. Woo, that's magic. Yeah. And then he hits the, you know, the major seven over the top of that. And you're like melting as you listen to it on the radio. You take the chords out and you just have this. And it's just not quite as interesting. So that's a big part of my writing is to have chord changes underneath. You know, and uh, so live it can be a little bit of a, a trick to pull some things off as a trio. Well, but we try. <laughs> you, man, if anyone can do it, it's you. you got, <laughs> but we try. <laughs> you got a lot of different grips under your fingers, I'll tell you that, man. Anything else that I've left out? Hey, let's talk about who our favorite guitar players are. Who's your favorite guitar player? <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Oh, 
dude, that question always stumps me. I, I definitely yeah. do not have a favorite, but you know, and as a teenager, I think those are the years that really, really affect us, huh? Yeah. So for me, it was like Van Halen and David Gilmore. Yeah. My my Nile favorite. Rogers. My yeah. Oh God. The funk, man. The funk of that guy. Yeah, he's the one who really got me started on electric. I was playing acoustic, and then I heard, oh, freak out. Yeah. <laughs> we all know how to play, right? <laughs> yeah, except for I, I, I interviewed Nile, and he's like, man, I can't tell you how many times I walk into a bar and see someone playing it, and they think they're playing how I play. Yeah, and they're, but they're not. not. I think what he was showing to me when I was sitting down with him was that you know, we all play, a lot of people, Chili Pepper style funk is yeah, these long strokes of the pick and he's really just about strumming two little strings at once. Yeah. That's impossible for me to do. <laughs> he's like... I guess that, would that be like a Paul Jackson Jr. kind of thing too? And I'm not saying that's how Niall plays, but that's closer yeah. to it. These right, smaller strokes, and I don't know if that's how Paul plays. I'm not that yeah. super familiar. Yeah, I mean, he does Paul's a lot of yeah, a lot of yeah. single note. You know, the R and B kind of thing. I come yeah. from like the Stevie Ray Vaughan funk, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of thing. A lot yeah. of back and forth between the. Yeah. <laughs> so for me to have to. That's tough. Yeah, just try it because because if your pick is going a smaller distance, it doesn't go as fast. Like yeah. It's yeah. it's more blah da da da. It's kind of want to get checka, caught checka. In there, isn't it? <laughs> There's something in there the way he does it yeah. like that. Like, now see, I have to go. Now I'll go back and listen, and maybe it'll open up a whole new. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, he was a big guy. But what about you? Who are, who are your influential people other than, I mean, Randy Rose is huge for me too, but I missed him. I saw yeah. Ozzy with Brad Gillis, which was also yeah. phenomenal. Yep. That would have been about 82 as well. Same year. That would have been June. He was my guitar hero. Uh, you know, before him, I was really into Ace Freely. I love all those licks he played, you know? And, uh, but, uh, you know, Angus Young, Brian May, uh, love, I mean, David, my favorite 2016 release is David Gilmore, uh, Rattle That Lock. His guitar playing on there is phenomenal. It's as good as it ever was. And his tone is even more him than ever. I'm like, oh. Yeah, that That's, one, that record is just unbelievable. I'm gonna have to check that out. I'm a huge Gilmore fan, and now you're reminding me of all these other players that changed my life. My first concert, 12 years old, for me, my Randy Rose experience was seeing Angus and Malcolm yeah. at the Cow Palace. I had no idea. I was 12 years old. I didn't realize what a concert could be. Yeah. You and could ask, yeah, you could ask 20 guitar heroes to play. Okay, play me the riff for "Beating Around the Bush" and make it feel just like Angus or Malcolm. Yeah, and. It's so hard to swing it like they do. Actually, yeah. Angus swings it more than Malcolm does. Oh, we got to play it. That... <laughs> uh, right? It's, uh, do you, I expect me to believe. When I was 12 years old, I heard it backwards because I didn't know where the one was. Oh, so, oh yeah. And then, so, oh, yeah, I just love oh, dude. And the other big thing for me was Stevie Ray Vaughan. I, that album, Texas Flood, came out. He was still playing clubs, and I snuck out of the house one Sunday night, school night, 
saw him at the Kabuki in San Francisco, my hands were on the stage in front of him for watching him play a two-hour set, going through like 10 Stratocasters, yeah. sweat pouring from his forehead to the tip of his cowboy hat and just dripping down. I'll never forget that night, you know? Yeah. There's no YouTube or nothing. It's like, you want a piece of Texas? You got to go to the club and see Texas yeah. come to you, man. It, it was crazy. Yeah, he's... Man. <laughs> I didn't mean to shred, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I do that. That whole first album, dude, I was, uh, you know, just that. Uh... I, I, you know, I even, I learned the alternate one. People don't realize there's all that alternate one on the end, which is just like Pride and Joy. Yeah, right. And so I'm crying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's. I have a. Here's a funny story. I should have been on the neck pickup for that demo. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, that backbeat thing. So I did one of these all star jams, and Don Felder was one of the guitar players on there. And he called out a Stevie Ray Vaughan tune because Chris Layton was the house drummer. I was the house guitar player, and Tony Franklin called me to do it with him. Eddie Van Halen's there, all these different guitar players. So we're going to play with Don Felder, and we do like Hotel California and some other things. And at rehearsal, we did uh, Pride and Joy. And um, so there's the backbeat thing, which Don's not getting in there. So Chris Layton leans over to me and goes, hey, do the backbeat so it feels more like Stevie, you know. Don's Don's good, but he ain't fucking Stevie. (laughs) Let's just get right up. So what's funny is then fast forward, we play the gig, you know, a couple weeks later. And we get done with that song, and Don Felder leans over to me and goes, man, that really felt good. Bad, that drummer, wow. And I realized at that moment, he forgot that this was the Stevie Ray Vaughan drummer, and that's the reason why we called that song. <laughs> Genius. Comedy. And then we played Hotel California, and he's like, you know, I, I really want to do the, the main portion, the bulk of the solo. I'm like, hey, it's your moment in front of the audience. Just tell me what you want me to play. So I did a couple of the harmonies and played very... Minimal, but did the harmonies that were necessary. And we're playing up there, and all of a sudden his pedal comes unplugged. But he doesn't have his formal tech with him. And suddenly I go into the solo, because if I stop playing, he stops playing, there's no guitar at all. But nobody's, everybody's freezing. They're like, they're looking at his guitar cable that came out of the tuner, and nobody's doing anything. (laughs) Finally, somebody plugs it back in halfway through the solo, and he finishes it. I'm like... If you live long enough, you've done it all. Seen everything. (laughs) And the pedal board is only as strong as its weakest link. Oh, God. Well, dude, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Dude. We got to jam together, too. We definitely, we got to jam together. We got to, um, well, we got to do another one. There's too much stuff to talk to you about. (laughs) Definitely need a part two down the road. You know, I'm sure you have another album out next week, knowing you. <laughs> I'm going to so. try. <laughs> to try a little fade out jam or something? Sure. You, Let, you set it let's up. Let's play something to fade out. Shit. I don't know. I'd love to. i love to hear you play some blues, man, because you are such a great blues player. How about minor blues? Minor blues, what key? Uh, 
Fuck, I don't care. B flat. What groove are you picturing in your head? I know you asked me to call, but you're the guest, man. Well, how about a little minor four nine? Thank <laughs> you. 